Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and I'm at the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling at Concordia University in Montreal. In his book entitled The Fur Trade in Canada, the great Canadian historian Harold Innes proposed what would become known as the Staples Thesis. The idea that resource-rich but low-population countries like Canada depend on the extraction, processing, and export of basic natural resources to more populous, urban, and powerful countries. Innes pointed to fur, fish, and lumber in Canada's early history and the country's dependence on European markets for these products. Historians and social scientists used the Staples thesis to explain Canada's dependence on American capital in the 20th century and the continuing resource dependence of the country. Nothing better exemplifies the Staples thesis than the one-industry resource towns that are scattered throughout Canada. Today, I'm going to interview Stephen High on his book, One Job Town, Work, Belonging and Betrayal in Northern Ontario, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2018. Stephen, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, this book is about Sturgeon Falls in Northern Ontario. You grew up in Northern Ontario, not that far away from Sturgeon Falls. So is this what drew you to write this particular book? Well, I grew up in Thunder Bay, which is a, a fair ways from Sturgeon Falls, but it's, it's the same region. And so with this book, I felt that I was going home to some extent. It's a, uh, a region that I, that I know um, well, and it's part of me, even though I, I left at age 18. Um, the book began uh, while I was teaching at Nipissing University, which was just 25 minutes down the road um, from Sturgeon Falls in North Bay, Ontario. And I just got the job that summer, and, uh, and the, the mill closed in October. And I had students in my classroom who were saying to me, you study labor, you study deindustrialization. You know, you need to be looking down the road and looking at Sturgeon Falls. So it was actually my students that pushed me from being a bystander, you know, an interested bystander, you know, reading the newspaper, caring what happened, to actually, uh, to, to actually initiate this project. So I, I give them a lot of credit for pushing me, right? Uh, making sure that this, this closure, like so many other closures, did not pass, uh, pass in silence. Well, I couldn't help but notice that in your preface, how many years this book actually took to, to research and write. So take us through the evolution of your research and writing on this book. Well, I'm a historian, and, and as a historian, I, you know, I primarily um, look backwards, right? And, and so my PhD thesis was looking at the 1970s and 80s in the 90s, right? So it was 10, 15 years into the past, and that was even a struggle to get through a, a Department of History. It was too recent. Whereas here I'm looking at Sturgeon Falls, it's happening right now, right? Uh, you know, it's 2002, the mills just closed. And so within a year of the, the closure, we start interviewing people. And so when you're interviewing people, as that history is still unfolding, you know, the emotions are intense. Um, people don't know yet what will happen. And so each interview was almost time-stamped, right? Like the early interviews, there was still some residual hope. 
that the mill would be reopened, you know, that it would be like Capiscasing or Temiskaming, you know, mill towns that refuse to die? Um, or would it be like so many others that, you know, where the mills close and, and that's it? And the town dies. Yeah. And so you, we have, you know, this evolution of the story. And, and people, you know, people were, were fragile. Um, the fact that they're willing to talk to us, you know, at this kind of moment, you know, tremendous generosity. Uh, but also they were, you know, they were sensitive. Like they, I, we got a lot of questions like, you know, did we work for the company? Or did we, did we get any funding from the forestry company that was leaving town? We're like, no. Or we, I even had one person, you know, look into, you know, we interviewed at Nipissing, looked into um, our printer to make sure we weren't using Weyerhaeuser paper. <laughs> you know, so people were really angry. And I, I think sometimes when you think about the economy, or jobs. We think it's only about employment. It's only about the paycheck. And of course, that is crucial. That is crucial. But it's also um, more than that. It's about identity. It's about one's sense of place in the world. And Sturgeon Falls is a place where generations of family members worked in this plant. It's a plant that opened in 1898, so and, what, five years before it closed. Um, and so there was this residual connection to to this this work and this place that suddenly gets torn torn away, and so the the emotions were were raw. Now um, you freely admit that you were not uh, a disinterested observer, and I was taught many years ago when I first started history the importance of objectivity. So. Can you talk about that a little bit, how you approach this, how you dealt with your own feelings and emotions on the issue? Well, I think with oral history, um, like oral history, its power, well, it reminds us that history inhabits each of us. That history is not just out there somewhere, it doesn't belong to just people in power, that it actually exists within ourselves, within our families, within our communities. And that history is subjective. And so, and so one thing we did was we made the decision at the outset to interview a cross-section of people. So we interviewed, you know, unionized workers, right? We interviewed middle managers, you know, plant managers. We interviewed um, city officials, uh, sort of uh, economic development people to get, uh, to get sort of a, a wide range of, of uh, perspectives, right? And, and who is the we that you're talking about? So I was able to um, hire through a Ontario Works program uh, an amazing uh, student named Kristen O'Hare, who was from the area. Uh, and so she and I were doing the interviews. Um, and so again, with interviews too, I think the other point I want to emphasize is that, um, you know, when the mill closed and they demolished the mill fairly quickly, they didn't just demolish the mill, they shredded 105 years of history. You know, there was a building at the foot of the of the water tower which had dozens and dozens of boxes of history. And this isn't just Weyerhaeuser's history, because Weyerhaeuser only owned that mill for five years. It's the, it's the community's history, right? And, and that history is no longer accessible. And so for me, you know, these interviews, these interviews are archived in Sturgeon Falls as well as outside of Sturgeon Falls. This is a way for us to counter that forced forgetting, which is very important. But you asked about, about objectivity. And for me, it's about being true to, you know, being transparent about the choices that we make as historians. Um, so those interviews are available. And so, you know, Greg, you can go listen to someone 
and then, and then you can and then you, you can come to the conclusion that you know Steve High when he wrote that book and he uses that person's quotation or that story he's totally you know uh, distorting it his politics got in the way right so no for me that that transparency of the research like any good historian keeps us all honest right um, now the book took a long time and I think one of the reasons why it took so long um, is I also needed some a bit more distance right that it was so close so near it took a while for me to figure out what the story was that I wanted to to focus on um, and so the the book took you know was that 12 years right 14 years I forget um, and so it took a while. Um, I also did archival research. You know, you find little bits here and little bits there. People had lots of stuff in their basements, right? You know, like it's amazing what people keep. Um, you know, like there was a file here, a box there, and there's some great stories. Like one, one fellow, um, he, you know, the mill was closing. And so he approached the, the mill manager and he said, uh, there's a box of, of employee newsletters here that are officially owned by the by the company. Could they be donated to the museum? And the plant manager said, no, they're company property. But another staff member overheard the conversation and whispered, drive up, you know, back your car up after hours and we'll load this. So it becomes historical contraband, right? And so this box of newsletters is now in the, in the local museum. And I think this is such an important part of history. Now, I was interested in interviewing you in part because I had the experience of living in a, a virtually a single industry town, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, for a couple of my last years of high school. I remember very well the smell in the town and how everybody referred to it as the odor of prosperity. I was attracted to the great paying unionized jobs. I worked for the company for, for about six months after high school. I decided not to go to university right away because I wanted to make some, some very good money very quickly. Then went on to university and I didn't stick with the job, but many of my high school friends did. And they kept their jobs until the mill began to close down, but it closed down very gradually. First one line, then another line, then another line, and then finally it was closed down. And this sounds to me like the history of Sturgeon Falls. Yeah, no, it was a slow death closure. So very much like what, what you're speaking of, where you had, at the peak, you had 600 workers in Sturgeon Falls, which is a small town of 6,000 people. So you can imagine how how important that employer was. So like Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, that was Weyerhaeuser or Abitibi, right? So yeah, so a similar story. And this is a mass experience, right? Like to me, you know, Sturgeon Falls, this is not as specifically a Sturgeon Falls story, it's the story of hundreds of towns, not just across Canada, not just the company towns in, in sort of the provincial norths of Canada, but if you think of the United States or Europe, it's, a, it's, it, you know, it's millions of workers who've experienced this. And, and I would argue that, that deindustrialization is a form of structural violence, that in a way, the hurt that it causes people, you know, and the disillusionment and the sense of betrayal, you know, we're seeing that some of the political ramifications of that today, whether it's Donald Trump or uh, Brexit or the rise of right-wing populism, there's a lot of, a lot of anger particularly because governments didn't take notice, right? Governments sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, this is the way of the world. You know, despite the fact that 
everything around us is made somewhere, just as it always has been. It's where it's made that's changed. Uh, and that's a political decision in my mind. So uh, tell us, go back in time and, and tell us about the early history of the mill, uh, why it was established, and then maybe describe what happened during the Great Depression and the Second World War, because it closed down for a while. But I first want to find out what its earlier history was and uh, how prosperous a place did it become in a short time, particularly during the roaring 1920s. Hmm. Well, most most uh, industrial, like mill towns in, say, northern Ontario or elsewhere have, like, a an origin story. So one of my favorite stories is in Cobalt, where... Uh, they're putting through the railway and a railway worker, you know, there's a fox that steals his lunch. So he throws his hammer at the, at the fox, misses the fox, hits the ground, you know, silver is born, therefore this boom town, right? And this is a story that becomes, <laughs> you know, repeated and repeated and repeated. And every town has, you know, a, you know, a story like that, whether it's, you know, the first white settler, the first white industrialist, um, you know, all these things. Um, uh, it's often uh, an individual that's remembered. Sturgeon was a little bit different in the sense that you didn't have, you know, the early period of industrialization was very tentative and uncertain. There was litigation, there was shifting sort of ownership. Um, and so it's a bit, a bit muddy, right, in terms of the local memory. So it's only the 1920s with the the Spanish River Company that um, that you really saw, you know, this boom period, and that's the first sort of larger, sort of more established company. It had mills in Espanola, uh, the the Sioux Saint Sioux Saint Marie, and Sturgeon, and 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 the Sturgeon Mill again was important in the in the context of Ontario history. Uh, it's one of the first two, and um, and it's tied to sort of the the Ontario policy that if wood is cut in the province, it had to be processed in the province, right? Um, which meant that you could no longer ship sort of raw logs to the United States to be to be milled, right? You had to mill them here. And the same with paper. And that led to a lot of U.S. capital moving into Ontario uh, during the late 1890s, but particularly after, you know, by World War One, certainly, um, and that's that really resulted in a lot of these these mill towns being created in the first place. Um, and so there's that boom period in the 1920s, and of course, pulp and paper was a crucial crucial industry for Canada's early development. Uh, and then you have the Great Depression and the collapse of markets, uh, and mill towns like Sturgeon Falls are are the worst hit. You know, the mill closes for. Uh, for 17 long years, those who could left, and so the population settles down, uh, and everyone is on is on welfare, right? Or at those days, you didn't have the same welfare system. It was relief. You had relief, yeah. And, and, and even then, all the governments are sort of scrambling. And so you have the scandal, like Sturgeon becomes... Um, a bit renowned in the 1930s because, um, you know, the way they had it was you could access provincial and federal funding, but you had to put forward local funding to sort of leverage the the provincial and federal funding. Well, they had no local money, right? And so uh, they faked it, right? It was a big fraud, but it was actually, you know, a fraud for the general good in a way, right? In the context of governments not doing what they're supposed to do. And so I have a whole chapter revealing this um, 
I think, a really important, interesting story of sort of solidarity. Now, of course, this is a, a community that began as a uh, both Francophone and Anglophone, but during these periods of depression, it shifted uh, very much towards becoming a, a Franco-Ontarian community. So by the end of that 17-year you know, drought, um, it was basically a Franco-Ontarian community, and so and so throughout the war years, you know, there's no there's no economic activity going on, and it's only 1947 when the mill gets reopened, not to produce newsprint as it was the case before, uh, but to produce corrugated paper, which is that sort of fluting p- uh, paper that that's in between the cardboard, and then they start building, they started adding other processes like um, plate mill and hardboard and so on. So they, they were making different kinds of products, which is also a lesson that they got from the Great Depression, you know, not, you know, not to be dependent on a single product because that won't be there forever. And so it was, it was a diversified mill, right? Which to me was a, actually a great lesson to get out of the Great Depression. And, and thank goodness Sturgeon had that because as we were saying before, you know, Eventually, each of these lines closes down, right, until you only had the corrugated paper by the end. Right, and so you, you actually refer to the division between the French-Canadian workers on the one hand and English-speaking managers. So the, the, the division remained. There was probably only a minority of what I would call English speakers or Anglo-Canadians, but they were the managers of the mill, and then the majority were the French-Canadian workers. What, what kind of environment did this produce? It was almost like um, pre-Quiet Revolution Quebec, right? So places like Shawinigan, or our mill towns in Quebec were like this too, where you had English uh, capital, right? Like either from the United States or from Great Britain or from English Canada, moving in, you know, the managers or the engineers with education were all Anglophone, um, they're not from these communities, but they hired the, the labor locally. And so that was very much the situation in, in Sturgeon. So you had a, a um, company housing uh, next to the mill, which was for the managers, because as soon as they retired, you know, many of them would leave uh, town. Um, and, so, and so language, you know, so the mill dominated um, the, local, the local scene, and... Um, and the language of work in the mill was English. And so in a way, you know, for generations of, um, of young people, you know, you know, the schooling was really preparing them to go to work in the mill. And so therefore learning English was very important. And this really sort of crashed um, and burned um, in 1971. And this is sort of the quiet revolution sort of comes to, to Northern Ontario when um, the mill manager at the time, he stood up at a meeting, because there, there were demands that, you know, why is it in a town that is 80% Francophone or Franco-Ontarian, why is it that the only high school is an English high school? Like, why is that? And, 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 and so there were demands to have a second high school. And so the, the general manager stood up at a meeting and said, if you go for that, if you, if you, if, if, if you charge us, the company, more taxes for a second school, you're going to force the closure of the mill. And the town did not respond well to that kind of threat. And so there were marches on, on the mill, and the mill became a bit of a lightning rod. And, and this movement, you know, won. They won their high school. And after that point, I think the political power of the mill manager 
was diminished, right? Like before the mill manager was really at the top end of the hierarchy of not just the mill, but top of the food chain, even the house on the main street, there was a company house that was a mill manager's house. And after that point, you know, mill managers tended to live, you know, outside the town actually in, in North Bay. Um, and so, and so there's all kinds of, you know, I think with a local study like Sturgeon, it reveals these wider processes, right, that are really foundational to the understanding of Canada. You know, another another vector, another thing to really think about is around sort of settler colonialism and and how we often think of sort of you know the the coming of the Europeans and the European occupation of the land and the pushing out of indigenous people. It's often associated with like farming, right? That you know farmers come in, take the land. Um, but in Northern Ontario, it's Rock Tree Lake. It's not. It's not really conducive to farming, and so col like white colonization in the provincial Norths in Canada was very much bound up with industrialism. So mining, lumber processing of natural resources, like Harold Innes talked about. Exactly. No, Harold Innes is foundational, um, and, um, and yeah. And so I, I try to talk about that too. That. That you know, towns like Sturgeon Falls were racialized communities. That there were very few indigenous workers. Like there were some indigenous workers in the mill, but not as many as you'd think, right? Uh, and there are historical reasons for that, right? And so I, I do talk about that as well in in the book. And I think it's very important that we think about who's not in the conversation, right? Like whose voices are we not hearing? So if I if I limit myself just to thinking about the mill. You know, you might forget that that actually, you know, just down the highway, you know, there's Nipissing First Nation, right? Um, you know, how do they fit into this history? Yeah. And what was the language of the workplace itself in the mill? It was English, although, of course, um, people would speak to each other with a mix, right? But but with with management, it was English. The newsletter was in English. And eventually, near the end, you started to see uh, Franco-Ontarian managers um, get, you know, rising up from the factory floor. And so the interviews we did were life story interviews. So we were asking them about what it was like to grow up in this community. Um, did you want to work in the mill? Did you want to do something else? Uh, what was it like? You know, how were you hired in? And the hiring stories are always are always great because people remember. Well, they remember the exact date they were hired because that mattered. Because everything's based on seniority, right? Uh, accident stories. Um, so tell us, tell us one of these uh, stories, these hiring stories. Well, you know, people um, often spoke about how um, they got their job because uh, their father or sometimes mother were were employed in the plant, and their and their father was, you know, considered a good worker, and the father sat them down and said, you better do a good job or it's my reputation on the line too, right? So so the who was important. Many, many, many people got in because they were, you know, they were first hired as students, right? It was done by seniority. And so when they, when they hired students for summer jobs, the kids applying would apply and it was, you know, the decision of who got hired was, was based entirely on how long their parent had been employed there. It didn't matter if that parent was the mill manager or was uh, a lowly, you know, uh, hourly waged worker, which was a sense of, you know, a, a, a fair way of doing it. Of course, if, if you weren't from a mill family, right, meant that you were locked out. And so you see, uh, I think, a growing division within Sturgeon Falls between, you know, these mill families who have this 
intergenerational connection to the mill. But as the employment in the mill sort of goes down and down and down during the 70s and 80s, there's fewer and fewer families, and everyone else is locked out of that of that employment opportunity. And of course, it's the best paid job in town. And there's some resentment of it as a result. Um, and so, and so by the end, when you only had 140 workers left, in a way, the rest of the town, you know, was, was disconnected in a way that they hadn't been, say, 30 or 40 years earlier. Well, that brings me to the next point, which is your, uh, what you relied upon for sources. As you know, the Champlain Society was established in order to preserve the written record in the country. Uh, we've been at this for over 100 years, but... Uh, I noticed that your sources were a little different than a typical history book. Number one, uh, that you relied very heavily on oral sources. Second of all, there didn't seem to be much in the way of company records, so you had to rely on union records and other sources, but you used the uh, written sources to fill in the gaps left by the oral sources rather than the other way around. Is that right, or do I have it wrong? No, I looked at everything that was available. But like like I, I was saying earlier, the you know when the company left, you know they they took that history with them, and so there is no you know. I, and I wrote to the company, and they sent me some press releases as you know, and that that was really all all they had or all they were willing to share. That's um, what that's what they considered to be their history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I found amazing things in people's basements. One fellow, uh, Claude Lorty, he he um, bought a neighbor's shed, and the condition from the neighbor was, you have to clean out the shed. And so he found this box in there, and it was all the um, all the contracts from the 1950s and 60s between the mill and with area sort of farmers, like these really sort of small-scale farmers who would basically clear their land and sell the, the wood to the mill. And so I, I, I was able to get into that history only because this guy cleaned out the shed. Or there were other people who had, um, there was a credit union. So many, many um, industrial sites and factories and mills had, um, had small workers' credit unions. And this was a, you know, response to the you know, the hard time that working people have of, of getting sort of small, you know, getting credit, right, small loans. Um, and so this was a credit union that was based in the Sturgeon Mill. And so we interviewed a, a fellow who was a longtime president of that, and he was able to share with us a lot of information. So we knew what people were getting loans for, right, and to get a sense of how that made a difference in people's lives, right? And so on, right? Well, what a diversity of sources. I need to ask you, though, that you did archive all your interviews here at the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. Can you quickly tell us what this center is all about? Well, the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling, or CODES, is our, is our short form, it's a it's a research unit of the university, and uh, and oral history is a really interesting field because it, it sort of emerges um, on the margins, you know, of the margins of the history discipline, on the margins of the of the academy. Uh, most oral historians, you know, people would self-identify as being oral historians, are actually community-based, and so our our research center has about two hundred affiliated members. Um, Probably about 40% are community-based who are doing all kinds of really important, great work in their, 
you know, in their communities, but we also have artists and teachers and so on, faculty and grad students. Um, and so it's a place for conversation. Um, uh, we opened in 2006, and since 2006, we've done uh, almost 1,800 interviews uh, that are all archived here that are available to other people doing work. Uh, and, and oral history is one of the few um, interview-based sort of uh, disciplines that archives. So you think ethnography, um, anthropology, we often don't know the names of the people they're interviewing. Uh, we don't we don't get to hear those stories directly. It's all, you know, the, you know, the interpretations sort of monopolized by the researcher. Oral history, because we're influenced by history, uh, we believe in in that transparency and and that these and these interviews are are important because. These are, these are stories that would not make it into the archives any other way. Um, and so that's what, that's what connects our community together. Well, that's a, it's a wonderful initiative. I need you to tell us the history, very briefly, of another history that you recounted. So as a historian, you told us about history from the point of view of some of the mill workers through what you call the mill history binder. What was that? And what's the relationship between the history and the binder and your own narrative? So this is the biggest binder I've ever seen. Like, I didn't know they made binders this big. Like, it's like a, it's almost like Fordist, right? It's a massive binder. And, and, and these are two, two mill workers, uh, Hubert Gervais and Bruce Calhoun, who are, who are sort of the, the mill historians. Like, they are workers, but they were, they were passionately interested in the history of their of their workplace and, and the history of the mill. And so they started um, gathering stories and, and writing histories in the 1990s. Um, and so they, this, mill, this binder got bigger and bigger and bigger. But it really became important once the mill closed because when the mill closed and they locked the gates, you know, they're being denied access to, you know, to that site. And, and so this binder, you know, there's several copies of the binder. I, I have one, one copy. Uh, it becomes really important. So when, you know, uh, a, a mill worker's, you know, granddaughter or grandson's coming to town, uh, they can call up Bruce or, or Hubert at the time uh, and, and ask to borrow it, right? And so it becomes this, it's almost like if you think of families and the importance of the family album, right? As a, as, a, as a way to sort of transmit memory from one generation to the next within families. This is the same thing within a community, you know, a workplace community. And, and it's a beautiful thing, like, and, and, it, and it evolved over time. Like, you know, by the end, you know, they're putting in uh, their hunting pictures or their bowling league stuff. And so, and so you almost get, it's almost like a scrapbook, really. Um, and so for me, you know, obviously my book is very different. You know, I'm, I'm an academic historian. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the outside looking in. Um, whereas, you know, their, their, their binder is really serving a different purpose, I think, than, than, than what I'm doing. And so I, for me, my, I'm hoping that One Job Town amplifies, it documents, it, we learn about Sturgeon Falls, but also about how how Sturgeon Falls fits into the sort of the wider history of what's happening around, you know, around the deindustrialized world. Well, thank you very much, uh, Steve. My guest today was Stephen High. We talked about his book, One Job Town, Work, Belonging, and Betrayal in Northern Ontario, published by the University of Toronto Press 
in 2016. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallden, and this podcast was recorded at Concordia University on June 18, 2019. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst, and we look forward to you joining us again. Thank you. Thank you.